Welcome to the Readings Podcast, a celebration of books. I'm Nico Callaghan. In today's episode, a recording taken from an event at Readings Carlton to celebrate the publication of Benjamin Hegarty's book, The Made-Up State, Technology, Transfemininity and Citizenship in Indonesia. Transvisibility has become a major political force globally, but has very different histories and expression in many countries, including Indonesia. In this book, Hegarty, anthropologist, contends that warriors, who compose one of Indonesia's trans-feminine populations, have cultivated a distinctive way of captivating the affective, material, and spatial experiences of belonging to a modern public sphere. Hegarty was joined in discussion by Dennis Altman, Vice-Chancellor's Fellow at La Trobe University, and University of Melbourne Cultural Studies researcher Anissa Beta. To introduce, here's Reading's event staffer, Nelson Matthews. Good evening, everybody. Welcome to Readings. On behalf of Readings, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners and custodians of the land we're meeting on tonight and pay my respects to their elders, past and present. Well, tonight is the launch of a really important book and you'd be hard-pressed to find a more qualified or appropriate person to launch The Made-Up State by Benjamin Hegarty tonight than Dennis Altman, who is a professional fellow in the Institute for Human Security at La Trobe University. He has been president of the AIDS Society of Asia and the Pacific, a member of the Governing Council of the International AIDS Society, a board member of Oxfam Australia, and a visiting professor of Australian studies at Harvard. He was appointed the member of the Order of Australia in 2008. He's written 15 books, both fiction and non-fiction, that in part deal with sexuality and politics in Australia and the United States and globally. These include a book examining the work of Gore Vidal, with whom he had a long association and friendship, and his first, Homosexual Oppression and Liberation in 1972, which has been compared to Germaine Greer's The Female Eunuch in terms of its cultural significance. Personally, Dennis has always been a bit of a hero of mine and other men who came of age in the late 70s and early 80s in the shadow of the AIDS epidemic. And while I recall his activism, I most remember his bravery during that time. So it gives me great pleasure to introduce Dennis Altman. Okay, so with great pleasure, I launched this book. <laughs> um, but, but seriously, I think that The Made-Up State is to me a really significant book because it cuts across two major areas that I think we in Australia need to be much more conscious of. On the one hand, it tells us a lot about Indonesian politics in ways that are rather different to the normal assumptions people might make about politics in Indonesia. And at the same time, it's a genuine contribution to understanding contemporary debates about sexuality and gender. And I think I've said this to Ben on several occasions, that if there's one thing I'd like people to gain from reading the made-up state. It's a sense that there are other ways 
and sometimes much more complex and sophisticated ways of understanding sexuality and gender than the ones that we tend to take for granted in Australia. And so I'm going to begin, I'm going to ask, throw a couple of very naive questions at Ben. I warned him that I think this is a tough book to read. And I say that as a compliment. I mean by that it is a book that is worth reading and pondering and thinking through some of what Ben says and to avoid embarrassment because I didn't do this, good idea to look at the end notes before you say to Ben you've forgotten something. You'll probably find he hasn't. So I'm going to start off by asking Ben a couple of naive questions and then I'm going to throw it over to a discussion between Ben and his colleague Anissa Better. Anissa is a lecturer in cultural studies at Melbourne with a much greater understanding of the Indonesian landscape than I possibly can bring. Ben currently is a research fellow at the Kirby Institute, the University of New South Wales. And given we're plugging universities, I do need to say, and I'm very proud to say, that this event is co-sponsored by La Trobe Asia. And it's wonderful to have my university doing an event with friends and colleagues at readings. So Ben, let me start off by throwing a question at you, which is how relevant is the term LGBT to contemporary debates about sexuality and gender in Indonesia? Thank you so much, Dennis. Before I begin, I would like to acknowledge that we're gathered today on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and I'd like to pay my respect to elders uh, past and present. I'd also like to draw attention to the long history of First Nations queer theory and theorization of, of forms of gender sexuality and power that continue to contribute so much to our understandings of those topics. Point to the work of Sandy O'Sullivan and other scholars at Macquarie University. And thank you all to everybody to coming. Thank you to Dennis and Anissa for being on the panel and thank you to everyone involved for making this happen. So I guess in writing this book, I kind of avoided the use of a couple of terms in straightforward ways. I avoided the use of the, the term or the concept queer, and I avoided the term or the use of the concept LGBT. I guess the LGBT is a little bit easier to answer. So in Indonesia, LGBT has taken on a specific kind of of meaning that doesn't necessarily hold the same meaning that it does here. And that's largely because LGBT entered the political kind of landscape in terms of opposition to its presence. So it wasn't as though you kind of had a, had a kind of vibrant and in a way did, but not quite, not quite in the same ways that we would imagine here. But it's not as though you had kind of a vibrant and, and large and very visible LGBT political movement that then prompted forms of, of political backlash. Rather, you had kind of forms of political backlash that emerged in, in 2016 or so that then gave life to, I guess, what, what is now called a kind of opposition to LGBT, tolak LGBT or anti-LGBT politics. So for that reason, I think it's really important to kind of, I guess, separate out the kind of diverse histories of the ways in which gender and sexuality are, are kind of understood in Indonesia, differentiate the kind of politics and the political movements, especially among Wadia, who I've, I've described as a form of trans femininity in this book, that have a very specific kind of political and economic claim to justice and forms of inequality. I'm going to now throw a couple of quotes from you, Ben, at you and ask you to, to expand on them. Mm -hmm. And it follows on directly from what you've just said, and I'm reading 
Speaking of warrior, their gendered form of bodily cultivation was harnessed to the self so they could become productive members of national society and could assist other citizens to align with the state's desire for economic development. And, of course, in that sentence, you bring together the two themes of the book in a very beautiful way. But maybe you can expand on that? Hmm. So why kind of self-cultivation and why desires for inclusion or acceptance, I guess, is another way to put it. So commonly, the way in which the story goes, I, I think it probably needs to be pointed out, this, this book is, is roughly speaking a kind of history, but it's a history that's grounded in, in ethnographic research. So the kinds of relationships and experiences that I've had in Indonesia uh, since I, I started this research and started uh, working in Indonesia in, in 2008 or so, and so in that way, the book is a kind of funny book because it's a, an anthropologist is sometimes like, this is not ethnographic enough, and historians are like, this is not historical enough. But, but roughly speaking, the book is kind of, in a way, a lens view of historical processes through which wadia as a concept came to being, through which trans politics in Indonesia kind of came to, to form, as viewed from the present, the lives of everyday lives of wadiyas as they were living in Indonesia. That's kind of how the book came to be. And so in Indonesia today, although less so than, than was the case, it's common to see wadiyas working in specific kinds of industries, right? And often those kinds of industries are important. They're often the beauty industries, the salon industries. Wadiyas also commonly work in the context of lower class communities or, or, or poor communities as buskers as, and, and, and street performers. And those forms of work aren't only seen as forms of work. They're often seen as ways to obtain various kinds of recognition from neighbours and, and kin. So what is really interesting in Indonesia, and a lot of people are kind of puzzled over this, it's like, why is it that you've kind of got this very visible and very prominent form of transfemininity, which is, as I kind of outlined in the book, a kind of, in a way, a modern story, you know, it's, it's a, as, as is Indonesia as a nation itself. But how is it that you've got, on the one hand, these, these kind of visible forms of transfemininity, but on the other, kind of these deep-rooted forms of conservatism? And so that when particular kinds of claims exceed, say, you know, the context of the beauty salon or the context of specific kinds of self-cultivation, why is it then that they're met, say, on the national stage, you know, you kind of go and you uh, try to become a mayor or a governor or, or something else, you know, you'll then meet a kind of swift form of rejection. Why is that the case? Why, why do you have that kind of, in a sense, contradiction? I think there's some really interesting stories to tell there about the meanings of citizenship, its kind of fragility as well, as, as we're all seeing in different formations around the world, you know, that citizenship is not something guaranteed, something that can be lost. I think at this point, Anusha, I'm going to bring you in because uh, I like the fact that, Ben, you, you, you asked about five questions um, in that last... No, that, that's, that's not a complaint. I'm delighted you're doing my job for me. So I'm going to let Anusha answer the questions. Thanks, Edis. Maybe because I think Ben's being very humble in explaining the contributions of the book. I mean, Dennis have already explained how significant it is. But maybe I could just draw or perhaps uh, describe it more specifically in areas where I think it's really important. I teach gender and contemporary culture at the University of Melbourne. We work a lot together in the area, Ben. And I think why the book is really fundamental is because it, it brings in very important interventions which I don't think you've sort of highlighted enough. Oh, please. <laughs> to sell your books here. Yeah. But also, critically, and I, I, I would like to uh, bring up a quote that you put in the conclusion chapter, because it's where the present time really emerges in the story, because as you said, it's a historical book. It's a, a book about history. But Ben says that it's important to ask what is included and excluded in transgender studies 
and politics. And obviously this becomes very clearly important for people who work in gender studies. And then recalling an important scholar in, in Indonesia on sexuality, Henry Julius Wijaya, you said that we need to think about sexuality as something that is constructed through a series of political negotiations instead of individualized, essentialized grid of difference, which I think is very resonant hopefully for those of you here because perhaps, and this is my experience for us in the sort of global north western context mm. it's often this individualized you know obviously not historically but often at present time that's the discourse so mm. if you could perhaps uh, less humbly explain to us <laughs> the significance of your work in this and and how how the book speaks about the politicized elements of of sexuality and gender identity yeah thanks anisa i think you've done a really great job at drawing that out <laughs> so i don't know if there's much more for me to add so I think the problem arises in lots of different ways, right? Like if you're, if you're kind of, uh, if you've got a set of concepts or series of concepts, you know, like sex, um, even gender and sexuality and sex, right, are set apart as particular kinds of scholarly tools that we use to think analytically about particular parts of society, but, but often days the self, right? So you're seen to have a sexuality, you're seen to have a gender what I think is interesting in the case of Indonesia, and really the made-up state as a title, I mean, and now is where I reveal like what the meaning of the made-up state is. But the made-up state is, is really, I guess, a cisgender normativity that the Indonesian state has tried to impose on individuals over you know, the past, whatever, 60 years of its, 70 years of its existence, but always failed, right? So I think in the Indonesian context, again, I'm going to history. I know you told me not to do this, but going to history because it's so interesting, you know. In Indonesia, what it was to be gendered, you know, male or female was certainly not settled at independence, right? Rather, the categories for difference, the salient categories for governance and for difference were race. They, you know, people were div divided into indigenous, pribumi or na native in, in the Dutch language, legal language. So these forms of racial categorization were how citizenship was defined. It wasn't gender. So to be a woman, in fact, was not available to lots of many indigenous women. Um, if any at all. So the very idea of being gendered in that context was so racialized, right, that it's very tricky to separate those things, which I think is why, of course, you know, you've got different theoretical tools that you can, you can speak of to, to analyse this. But in the Indonesian context, that's why I think it's so important to attend closely to these histories. How do they still have force in the present, you know? I think in the Indonesian context, you see still a lot of ambiguity you know you see this kind of strong anti-lgbt politics but on the other hand you see so much ambiguity in actually how gender and sexuality are really defined you know politically so in terms of the question of political negotiate you know often our language for, for in international politics of gender and sexuality is by virtue of the way that knowledge is produced euro-american right or, or comes from theories developed in, in the, the United States and, and, and Europe, or Western, Western ideas. And so for that reason, you tend to have like the imposition of particular ideas onto other kinds of cultural forms. I mean, this will be very familiar to a lot of people. And so, you know, nowadays it's common to speak of, say, you know, things like the cis-trans binary as though those are kind of products of the individual self, which these, of course, can be terms, are terms that are useful in lots of ways. You can speak of gender identity. But I sometimes wonder about what the implications of really thinking with those terms politically across all different contexts is. And I think somewhere in the book I say, you know, at times this kind of way of talking about 
politics as related to forms of identity related to the self could remove the kind of urgency of the claims in the present, which were really about claims to access to healthcare, they were about claims to access to forms of economic justice, they were about claims to safety in public, which were, were very fraught. And I, I participated in a lot, I mean, this is outside of the book, I'm, you can check out my articles, but um, <laughs> the ethnographic work that I've done, you know, really illustrates this, I think, very forcefully, the, the distinction between these, not that they can't be done together and in different ways, but but I think that, that it's important to pay attention to, you know, I, I found it important to actually pay attention to how people were doing politics in their own ways against the backdrop of this really, like, very different other history. It's another history of gender and sexuality. It's it's not really the same. I mean, it overlaps. It's, it's linked to global currents, but it's not really the same. I wanted to ask you about the other sentence that I'd underlined, mm. and it's something you and I have talked about before. So let me quote... Warriors provide a better understanding of the relationship between moral and technological progress against a broader backdrop of social change in post-colonial Indonesia. And I think there are two themes there that I'd like you to talk about. One is, of course, the way in which the nature of the state has evolved and changed since independence. But the other is your use of technology. And you use the term technology right through the book in ways that I found sometimes surprising. So I think it'd be worth expanding on what you mean by that term. Yeah, sure, Dennis, thank you. What interests me about technology is often that it's seen as an apolitical or not a political domain, firstly. So it's seen as uh, something that takes place neutrally across all settings. But the Indonesian case is really interesting for lots of reasons. And historians of Indonesia and the Dutch East Indies have fantastically shown the ways in which technology was taken up in Indonesia was kind of transformative and did all kinds of things and held all, all kinds of meanings that it did not necessarily have in, in Europe. And in fact, many of the kinds of experiments that took place in the Dutch East Indies in particular then transformed how technology was taken up and understood in Europe. So I think that's kind of, you know, that placing the book in that history, in that historical discussion about how it is that technology transformed how people imagined themselves to be Indonesian and was really central to, I mean, the famous work is, of course, Benedict Anderson's um, Imagined Communities, you know, where he talks about the centrality of print capitalism or technologies of media, right, to shaping how people imagine themselves to be Indonesia. What I wanted to was kind of give a counterpoint to Benedict Anderson's work in lots of ways. So he kind of talks about the way in te which technology, it's almost as though it's kind of an imprint on the imagination, right? The famous image that he has is like, you all open a newspaper on the same day <laughs> and or you, you watch a flag raising ceremony, all of you on the same day across all of these different parts of Indonesia. And that's the moment at which you think, oh, I'm, I'm really part of something, right? But you never meet all these other people. They're anonymous to you. And that's, that's I think, a very, very cool and, and you know, important <laughs> contribution. But what Benedict Anderson doesn't talk about is the way that these processes are embodied, right? They're also about the body and about sexuality and about desire in ways that exceed, right, the print on the page or the simplicity of looking at a flag. You know what I mean? They're about kind of how you imagine yourself to be and what you want to be. So what I wanted to do was really kind of 
put a gendered lens, if you can say that, right? Or, or place this kind of history, really amazing history, I should say. I mean, that's the first thing to say is that Wadiya history is incredible. And the reason I wrote the book really in, in you know, many years have passed since I started. So I've kind of forgotten how it started. But in discussion with lots of, you know, trans friends and, and collaborators in Indonesia is that this history was really incredible and that very few people were attending to it or interested in it at all, despite the huge amount of interest in and often exoticizing or voyeuristic interest in Wadiya's lives. So part of the work that the book tried to do was to draw out that history while also kind of giving a kind of alternative view on why gender and sexuality offered such a, an enriching site for thinking about these questions about politics, but also its relationship to technological change. Fantastic. And as a very proud friend, I also want to say <laughs> that the book is not just important for people in anthropology or in history. Actually, it's really important for those of you who are in political science and who are interested in studies of politics. Because what you said about technology, Ben, is actually in the book, it's about citizenship as well, right? Claims to citizenship. And what's important when we talk about technology is that you say dandan or putting on makeup, the made up state, is a form of technology. Can you explain a bit more about this practice of dandan, maybe a bit more about the beauty pageant and how the waria works it out as a form of technology? Yeah. So dandan is basically a kind of practice of, I mean, I call it kind of accomplishing gender through the application of different kinds of technologies, but that generally used on a daily basis, right, or are not seen as something which is permanent. Okay, so the main thing about Dundun is, is, as I saw it, its audience and its orientation towards a particular kind of audience. So in the book, I talk quite a lot about public gender. So what's really interesting, I think, in Indonesia is the way in which gender was governed and how, how people imagine themselves to be performing Dundun or not. And that's an important distinction, you know, because performing Dundun can be done you know, under particular circumstances, but not in others, to particular audiences and not in others. So public gender has been a really important site for governing citizenship in Indonesia, right? So the two key forms of the laws, really, if you can, if they are regulations that have governed sexuality and gender in Indonesia are not really the kinds of laws that we think, right? So, so laws governing sex, right? And, and sex assignment, and then say gender affirmation or gender change of legal gender, et cetera. Not that, it's more being forms of public comportment. So public nuisance and public morality laws have been the key regulations that have defined what is participation in Indonesian society. And they're generally governed at the level of the city, the, the district and the city. This is still important today and I'm involved in all kinds of things related to this. But basically, how Wadia performed Dundun was really important to how they first claimed recognition. So the story goes that in the 1950s, there was no such thing as Wadia. This is a story that I tell in the book. There's no such thing. And, and attributable to Mummy Maya, a senior Wadia in Jakarta who was around at the, you know, this time in the 1950s and 60s. So there's no such thing as Wadia, right? No such thing at all. All we had was Banchi, right? Banchi is this other Indonesian term. Now, Banchi is a bit more ambiguous, has lots of different meanings, I won't go into that. But basically, she said, the transition from becoming Banchi into Wadia in around 1968 was like moving from black and white television to colour television, right? So a kind of visual metaphor in lots of ways. And these visual metaphors are often used by, by Wadia. And in that context in 1968, what Mami Maya and, and other Wadia did was start to stake claims to recognition from the governor of the city, Ali Sadiqin. 
the way that they state claims to the governor of the city, Ali Sadiqan, in, in Jakarta at that time, was through beauty pageants, right, through participation in public life and to say we can be more beautiful than women. I mean, this is the kind of general narrative that you hear, right? And so through doing this, what Wadiya said was, well, we can, we can polish ourselves and make ourselves a kind of component of Indonesian society that is distinct, that can contribute something to a, a kind of really what was thought of as an economic process of, of development. And we can do this under particular circumstances in the city. So the governor then granted them a degree of lenience, right, in their ability to, to participate and do so, though it wasn't entirely open-ended. So I think that's probably the, the story that I would tell about Dundun and its relationship to making a claim to citizenship. And I think the work is important because also your discussion on femininity in the book really is resonant to those of, well, people like me who study young women and what womanhood means in Indonesia historically and at present time. Mm. And what's critical in the book is the discussion where you said at the same time, around the same time, around the same decade where the authoritarian regime imposed rule to women in Indonesia and it's actually still very present until today to be overly focused on family and domestic life. At the same time, Waria is allowed to appear in public, mm. of course, regulated, but their focus should be on work. Mm. And next you said on expertise. Could you say a bit more about that? Yeah. What I was thinking there actually was to go to a contemporary example as well of kind of overlap and relationship between forms of women's and feminist activism in Indonesia and trans politics and activism in Indonesia. And they actually have a very important relationship in contemporary Indonesia. But to me, often what happens in our kind of way of theorizing gender and sexuality is that we kind of tend to separate those things out. I mean, this is part of a legacy of kind of framing these topics as kind of, in a sense, queer topics, which is, is I'm not quite sure about. But I think that there's a really important case to be made for analysing, and I make this in the book, you know, these forms of transfemininity and transpuan and waria life. Transpuan is another category used in a contemporary setting in Indonesia since around 2018, together with feminism and women's lives. And those two things, in reality, are often addressing similar kinds of concerns and audiences. That is, the pursuit of justice in the face of violence and discrimination, access to healthcare, sexual reproductive health, you know, forms of economic and material justice. And often this kind of slips away if we, again, going back to this question of what it means to kind of theorise these things, if we are too narrowly focused on, on questions of these categories as kind of singular and attached to individuals, we can miss these kinds of linkages in lots of ways. So I think it's important, you know, historically and in the present to keep paying attention to the moments when these things are held together, experiences are held together and the political claims they make and the forms of solidarity they're actually like trying to, trying to voice that can be a bit suppressed sometimes. I wasn't trying to cut you yeah. off, but I, I'm going to actually stand up because that, that is a way of concluding. But I, I want to say um, that's partly because I know Ben is going to hang around, so people who have other questions can certainly waylay him. I have warned him that my experience of book launches is that the two people you least like would like to speak to are the ones who will rush forward, and the ones <laughs> you most would like to speak to are the ones who rush out the back door. But can I thank both of you? It's been a wonderful experience for me working with Ben and Anissa. Uh, it's a great book and also one of the things that is important to note is that Ben is donating all the profits from the sale of this book to the Warrior Crisis Centre in Yogyakarta. So if you need a further incentive to buy the book, there you have it. Thank you. And once again, thank you, Ben, for choosing to launch your book here yeah, at Readings. So okay, round of applause.
The Made Up State is available from Reading Stores and from our website, where you can stream previous episodes of the Readings Podcast. You'll also find all kinds of other recommendations, great books, music, film, and TV. And you can sign up to eNews or to receive our free monthly newsletter, The Readings Monthly. The Readings Podcast is produced by me, Nico Callaghan. The show's music is by Tom Hoskins. All episodes of this show are recorded and produced on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. I'd like to acknowledge traditional owners of this land and pay my earnest respects to elders past, present and emerging. Thank you.